Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center, and I am joined by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Yerushami. Together, we have more than five decades of legal experience defending religious liberty, the freedom of speech, and the sanctity of life in federal and state courts across our great country. I'm a Catholic, and I was an infantry officer in the Marine Corps, having served for 13 years. I like to describe myself not as a lawyer, but as a Marine with a law degree. Indeed, my law career is my second career. My colleague, David Yerushami, is an Orthodox Jew. We will discuss our important work and much more from our unique perspectives. David, welcome. Good morning, Robert. You know, the, the fact is, this is our first podcast, inaugural podcast of Faith and Freedom Fighters. So let's spend a minute or two telling our listeners, you know, who we are, what we do. You already pointed out a little bit, but let's talk about American Freedom Law Center and our own individual experiences, both before and after. So to begin, I'm a commercial litigator, been doing this trial work for more than 35 years now. And at the same time, was very much involved in public policy work and public policy litigation, dealing with issues relating to national security, uh, straight up public policy questions, things that we're confronting now with COVID protocols and the litigation and so forth. You and I met, how many years back was it? I believe it was in uh, 2008. 2008, wow. What's that? 13 years ago, quite a bit. And after kind of getting started together on a project, we formed the American Freedom Law Center. And the American Freedom Law Center, and you can check out our about page and what we've done and who's involved uh, at aflc.us or just spell it all out, americanfreedomlawcenter.org. But as a public interest law firm, we engage in litigation pro bono for the public good. We don't charge our clients. We litigate on behalf of our clients on constitutional issues, public policy issues. And over the time, we'll talk about some of these cases so that you all can kind of get acquainted with the kind of work we do. Rob, do you want to add anything to that little description? Well, you know, it's kind of, uh, I think we make a bit of an odd couple in some respects. Right? You're the, uh, the Orthodox Jew who currently resides now in uh, the California, previously in, uh, in New York. And I'm you know, out here in the in Midwest in, uh, in Michigan. Uh, you know, we have the uh, Orthodox Jew and the, the Catholic with 12 children. And as I like to say, I think we can uh, make claim to the fact that we are an authentic Judeo-Christian public interest law firm. So not only do we have kind of our unique talents, you have all those years in, in commercial litigation. And uh, I've been doing this kind of work for about 20 years after my first career as a Marine infantry officer. So uh, we kind of bring, I think, unique perspectives uh, to our work at the American Freedom Law Center. We bring a very aggressive attack uh, approach in our litigation, but again, unique experiences. And, and we hope to share those unique experiences through discussing the work we do, our cases, or 
particular issues, controversial issues, political issues, public issues that, uh, that come up time and again. And uh, today, for example, let's talk about this, uh, this impeachment charade, right, that just, uh, that just transpired, right? So much for unity, right? That was uh, Biden's uh, inaugural address was all about unity. And every, this uh, impeachment trial is anything but unity. It was all about disunity. It was about dividing our country and uh, so much uh, for that promise. But we knew that was going to be an empty promise, right? The left, unity to them means you do everything we want you to do. <laughs> that's, that's their idea of, uh, of unity, you know, and, and so much for our Constitution. As, and uh, I think, is, you know, is any of this surprising to you, David? No, and I, I think my take on this is, as you pointed out, the Democrats never intend unity. E pluribus unum to them simply means that everyone thinks the same within a certain box and acts a certain way. But I would argue, and you and I have had this discussion now, and it's one of the motivations for starting this podcast, I would argue that this country has been disunifying literally since the 1960s, the Vietnam War era, the hippie era, because as the hippies either got older and got their PhDs or got out of prison after serving time for terrorist acts or being pardoned by various presidents and got into the system, they began a substantive change to American culture and the American way of life. And it doesn't take much to look back to see those changes. But this was really accelerated under President Obama. And when you look back and see what the Obama administration put in place with the whole Russiagate collusion to destroy the candidate and then the president, see of President Trump. And you see that in context of the election and what took place with all of the changes and the way with COVID and the, the aggregating of votes and collection of votes, what they called harvesting of votes. When you look at all of that, they have no intention of unifying the country. Their intention was to use raw political power at the federal level and at the state and local level and make absolutely certain that there would never really be a conservative voice in American politics again. Now, I don't know that they've succeeded, um, but it certainly looks as though they have. And I will be surprised if a conservative voice is able to exercise that voice in any meaningful way, certainly at the federal level, in the future, I would be surprised. Yeah, well, you know, the um, they definitely they control the levers of power right now. But you can't you can't uh, ignore the fact that you know seventy five million or whatever the latest number was of Americans in, voted for uh, for Donald Trump. And I think there would have been a lot more. I've I've heard and I know people know anecdotally a lot of people just didn't vote for him because he didn't they didn't like the tone of his uh, of his message. But we'll wait and see when they start seeing what they you know, what they're getting out of the Biden administration, these progressives, right, is, uh, I forget who, somebody made the comment, it's like, you know, the turkeys voting for Thanksgiving, right, they're going to, they're going to take away a, 
a lot. There's no doubt about it. But I, but to me, I think what they, what the left fails to recognize, or perhaps maybe they do recognize it in some respects. But I think they fail to recognize that it, you know, that it's not just Donald Trump. You know, he 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 uh, he really awoke a uh, a a beast, as it were, and that really is the American spirit, right? It it took a non-politician, somebody like uh, like Donald Trump, somebody who had who had some brass balls, let me tell you, to tap into the spirit of America, to speak for we the people, right? We patriotic Americans who don't buy into the identity politics nonsense promoted by the left, which is only divisive. We don't buy into the idea that America is a racist country. We believe and we understand and we know that America is great, right? And, and the message that Donald Trump was conveying was a message that I think so many Americans you know, had in their heart and they finally had somebody on the national stage who was able to articulate that. And I think that scared the hell out of the, out of the uh, left. And I think they're still scared by it. And, you know, this, uh, this impeachment trial, I think they thought, well, look, if we, you know, if we chop the head off of this, uh, you know, of this, of this movement, then the movement will die. Well, it's not, it's not going to die. Just like, I don't think it's, it's ever possible to completely destroy our constitution. I know the left is doing the best they can to do so, but to me, the Constitution isn't just, you know, some ink on a parchment that's sitting in the National Archive. It's something that re resides in our hearts, right? I think it's foundationally, it's the natural moral law, right? The, the Constitution recognizes, and it doesn't grant us any rights, it recognizes fundamental liberties, fundamental freedom endowed by our creator. And that was the uniqueness of our founding fathers. I think what they created this, this really, this in, inspired political system that was designed to prevent you know, government tyranny, right? There's this natural inclination that once you get in power, you wanna to be tyrannical. And we put in place checks and balances, uh, you know, I suppose they have a limited federal government. We have the Bill of Rights. All those things are, are systemic to protect the, the freedom which resides in us naturally. Now, do I think there's been absolute attacks on those systems and breakdown, a breakdown in those checks and balance? Absolutely, but, but even the breakdown on the system to me is, is not going to destroy the spirit, which is right here in the hearts of all Americans. So I have, I have a lot of hope. In fact, I, I think what the left is doing now, they're, gonna, they're stepping out and they're showing who they are, right? They're just liars and they're hypocrites. And I think the more they expose themselves, the more they're digging themselves into a hole. And I think this movement that Trump inspired is just gonna, is just gonna explode because the American people are, are tired of it. And I, you know, and I, for one, will do all I can, and I know you as well, to do all we can within our, our powers with the American Freedom Law Center, with the, with the uh, litigation we do, to try to restore those systemic protections, as it were, for, the, uh, for our freedoms. But those freedoms still are gonna always reside in our spirit. Well, I, in the main, I agree with much, if not most of what you say. And the predicate that America is unique and blessed by God. The predicate that the Constitution represents certain natural law that comes from on high and which was articulated by our founders in the most incredible political document that ever has existed and likely ever will exist. However, I think where we differ is I might have said 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, that you can't destroy 
what's in the American heart and soul. But the reality is, other than a blessing from on high, miraculously, countries don't exist forever, at least not historically. They have a lifespan. And when they get far from their founding core beliefs and principles that allowed their, them to come into existence and, and have sovereignty, we find that they corrode from within and from without. America was unique in the world because it wasn't born of a people, right? I'm part of the Jewish people that had a national existence for some period of time through the first two holy temples. Um, but we haven't had sovereignty since King Solomon in any real sense. Israel is not Jewish sovereignty. It's a modern political nation consisting of mostly Jews. France, our Frenchmen, Spain, Spaniards, Germans, Germanic people, England, the Anglo people. They have a common history, a common language, a common culture, a common birth. We as a country don't have that. We're immigrants. We came here and we created a new culture, but a relatively young culture. Now, the fact that the founding principles and impetus for this country is based upon God-given natural laws about liberty and freedom, prosperity, the individual right to achieve individual responsibility, a faith in God and God we trust. The problem is, is that today, while there might be 75, 80 million, 85 million Americans who still have that beating in their hearts and minds, we have at least that number of people or even less that do not, that deny that reality. And this large group of people, and there might even be a smaller group with some percentage that are just kind of mushy. They're not sure what they believe in. But the individuals who don't have it beating in their hearts and minds, as you point out, control the levers of power. The question is, is their control of the levers of power so now ingrained and permeated, articulated throughout the system that those of us on the other side can't regain that control. I would argue, based upon my own 64 years, let's call my adulthood of 40 some odd years of experience, and having watched this progression from the 1960s onward, I would argue that we are in a civil war. It's a not kinetic civil war, and we're not, I'm not advocating for civil war. I'm simply saying that we are now in an existential fight, not just for this country's soul and its principles, but for its very political existence. And I don't see any way 
for the conservative, patriotic-minded citizen to regain control without it going kinetic, without it going to what we call the Second Amendment. Again, I'm not advocating for that, God forbid. But I don't see how it gets done. I, Given what we saw over the last six years, I mean, think about what the Obama administration did. It's not just about this election. They had cooked the books through this Russiagate. It was made up from start to finish. No one's gone to jail. One little lawyer, one little lawyer got indicted for committing perjury. And even then he didn't serve jail time. And this is even under the Trump administration. The President Trump, because he could not completely evacuate all of the shadow government, the bureaucrats and the technocrats that are very much a part of the other side of this country, the ones that don't have the concepts of liberty and in God we trust beating in their hearts. He could not undo their edicts. And so what are we faced with? We're faced with the country where elections will always be suspect if President Trump with the most votes of any president before him could not win the election, the electoral college or the popular vote in the face of obvious corruption after Russiagate and the media collusion with the bureaucrats to tell the same narrative over and over and over again, I'd like someone to articulate, I turn it back to you, a path. How do we get there? How do we change these levers of power in academia, in public education, in the bureaucracy, in the courts? You and I both know people who think the courts are not ideological. The only time a court is not ideological is when it's dealing with my area of the law, commercial law. If it's a contract between two businesses or two individuals that has nothing to do with ideology, a judge, a good judge, can make a decision based upon the law and the facts. The moment you introduce any ideological bent to the litigation, and in our area, it's all ideological. You and I have sued on COVID protocols. You and I have sued on the election issues. You and I have sued on abortion issues, pro-life issues. You and I have sued on jihadist Sharia law issues. And every single one of those litigations, we know that the judge's ideological bent is the biggest factor in how the in the outcome. It, it is perhaps the biggest factor, but it's not the only factor. And I remind you, remember dealing with the uh, the abortion issue, and and to to make sure it's very clear, we're absolutely unequivocally pro life on that on that issue. Um, remember just uh, a year ago, we, we won a, a free speech case on behalf of a pro-life group that wanted to display a, a aborted baby images in these large public shopping malls in California. We lost in the trial court, but yet the California Court of Appeals ruled unanimously under the California Constitution that they had a right to display those. I would have never thought we could prevail in that, uh, in that situation. But I, you know, one of the things, and I, I understand everything you're saying, um, I tend to be uh, very much uh, an optimist um, and in many respects. And, and I think even though we don't have the shared ancestry, you know, you went through the different countries with their 
you know, the common ancestry, the Germans, the Anglos, and the so forth, we have a common nature, the human nature. And, and I think for, for many years, um, Republicans, conservatives have been slipping at the switch. I know from just my experience dealing with this, uh, with this election litigation, my goodness, the things that, that were allowed to transpire um, were just, it was shocking to me that we didn't have uh, people in place, measures in place to address those, and they didn't. And I'm hoping the next time around that we learned a lot from that election, the lengths that the left will go uh, to, you know, to, to really to, to, um, to create election irregularities, if not outright fraud, and to flood the system with the absentee ballots and so forth, that we can, we can be more aware of that those things are taking place. I think, you know, and I've heard other people talk about starting a, a parallel economy, right? Not only do we have the levers of government, we also have big business and big tech are doing everything they can, as, as we know, to shut people down. But, and, but there's other opportunities. Yeah, we, we've got to do this, in, we got to do this in, in small steps, but we've got to do it in large measures. And I'm, I'm curious to see what, uh, what President Trump, and, you know, because he obviously has a lot of resources and the things that he's going to be doing uh, in this, uh, the next uh, election cycle. And I, I think people are more awake now. And, and the hypocrisy of the left is so plain and, and clear in front of us. If you don't see it, then you have a darkened intellect, right? And I've always said, I think this battle at the end of the day isn't so much about, is really about politics. It's, it's a spiritual battle. Right. There's good and there's evil out there. There's no doubt about it. And these, you know, these, these, these darkened intellects are, are just that because it is, in fact, a spiritual battle. And, you know, and to, pretty much to your point, though, in some respects, George Washington famously said in his farewell address that religion and morality are the indispensable supports to our political success. And certainly we've seen religion and morality uh, be eroded over the years tremendously. And so I, I think we're, we're, you know, we're reaping that right now. Um, but I, I, I still think that there's a lot of hope. I've got, you know, I've got 12 children. I see a lot of these young kids. The, the, young, the, younger, the younger kids that I'm seeing now are more committed in their faith. They're more committed to conservatism, to conservative values, to limited government, because they understand, I think they see that as government continues to grow, you lose your freedoms. Right? Look at this. Look what happened this COVID-19. I feel like I'm living in, in China, for goodness sakes, the way uh, the government's just using this you know, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And, and I think in some respects too, um, with this COVID-19, I don't think this, this election wouldn't have gone the direction it went, but for uh, the COVID-19 and all the mail-in ballots, which everybody knows there's, you know, fraught with, uh, with uh, fraud when you have mail-in ballots and so forth. So I, you know, I, I, I hear everything you're saying and, you know, partly because I've got, you know, 13 grandkids too. I don't want to think that this that they're not going to have the opportunities that I had in this absolute great country political experiment, but it's going to take work. I'm not saying that it's it's not, and that we're not going to have a, a lot of enemies to be fighting, as it were, whether it be in the courts and the campaigns and so forth. But we got to the conservatives need to start putting their money where their mouth mouths are, right? And start dumping Amazon, start dumping these big tech companies, start you know create this parallel economy and and start fighting back. At, uh, at every opportunity that you can. Go to your school board meetings. Know who's running for school board. If you have an opportunity, you run for school board, even at the lowest, you know, at the lowest level, at every level. The left has been very good about infiltrating even at the lowest level, which then um, creates, you know, bigger issues as you, as you move on up the, uh, the political scale. So we just, we just gotta, we gotta be, you know, men of action. That's what it's gonna take. Wait, I've been taking some notes here. Uh, and I want our listeners to understand something. Rob and I are, 
good friends. I mean, we're partners in American Freedom Law Center, colleagues. Um, but we do come from incredibly different backgrounds and perspectives. Now, what's unique is over the years when we talk about theological issues between Catholics and Orthodox Jews and so forth, um, we see that there's some really core commonalities. One of the things that we hope will come from this podcast is that men and women can differ in their understandings and perspectives. They can even have completely different political alignments, as it were. But if it's done in good faith with intellectual integrity and soulfulness, you don't have to be at war with one another. The problem is, is that's not where we are in this country. Now, having said that, let me just say this. Rob's notation about the fact that even though we don't have a common culture, history, peoplehood, and it's a relatively contemporary thing that we developed through our founders, the reality is, is that natural law and the idea of liberty is in fact God-given. It's a reality. It exists. So the question is, is how far can progressives, a leftist, actually deny reality? Well, I would argue pretty far. And the reason is because they've, over the years and through their education and culture, they've turned off their soulful sense, their ability to listen to their soul and hear it. That's why leftists can argue about moral relativity which is just stupid when you think about it. Because if you, all you have to say to the, the moral relativist is what you're in fact saying is there are no absolutes, absolutely. And of course, that's a contradiction in and of itself. The idea that there isn't transcendence, God at work in this world, is so patently contrary to the reality that we experience every single day, that how does anyone deny it? Someone might say, I don't know, how do I relate to this God? I get that, the so-called, not even the agnostic, because the agnostic simply says, I don't know if there is a God or not. But to say, yes, there is transcendence, there's no question, there's a guiding hand, I'm just not sure how to relate to it. I'm not a Catholic. I'm not a Jew. I'm not this. I'm not that. Fine. But to deny the reality altogether means that that person has really worked to shut himself off or the system has worked him or her. But because there is a God, no matter what I think about the civil war that we are currently in, the reality is, is this nation was blessed the Lubavitcher Rebbe, my Rebbe, made very clear that this country was blessed by God and blessed because of the pilgrims and the founders' fundamental trust in God, not just their belief in God or their faith in God. And we'll, I hope down the road we can talk about this difference between belief, faith, and trust. As far as I'm concerned, belief is meaningless. But 
founders and the pilgrims had more than just a faith in God. They had a trust in God. And because of that, and because I share that trust, at least in some measure, God can work incredible miracles. And I certainly hope and pray every day that he does for this country because the country deserves it. And I also accept, Rob, your discussion of the fact that you and I do battle in the courts and it's very easy for us to get, and we talk about it all the time, to get so frustrated because we know that the judge we're up against is a patent ideologue and no matter what the facts are, no matter what the law is, he or she is going to rule in favor of the Obama administration, the Biden administration, against the Trump administration. We know it. And 99.9% .9 of the time we're right, but you're right. There are instances that just for you, that just wake you up and say, golly, maybe there is some hope. You mentioned the case in California, but, and this is a good time to talk about it a little bit. We had a case that you litigated in the main, the Bible believers case. Actually, it wasn't the Bible. Which case we had the, the en banc Sixth Circuit. Bible opinion. believers. That was Bible, Bible believers. believers. Yeah, yeah. And I'll let you talk about it. But there we had at the lower court level, I, excuse me, at the appellate level, at the panel level, where we just had three judges, an African-American judge appointed by a liberal president wrote the most brilliant First Amendment, Amendment opinion one could possibly imagine. And I would have bet the farm that that judge would have ruled against us just on ideological grounds, but he did not. And I think he led the entire en banc panel, the whole court. Why don't you talk a little bit? Because that case is worth talking about in this context. Right. Well, the, uh, Bible believers was a, uh, a group of uh, Christian evangelists. They were um, they were pretty upfront in, in their in their beliefs, and they went to the uh, American Arab uh, Festival in Dearborn, Michigan, uh, seeking to proselytize um, the large Muslim community that's there. And they were met by resistance and and violent resistance. In fact, they were attacked with bricks and and stones and bottles during this Arab festival. And the uh, the Wayne County Sheriff's Department was providing security. And uh, they told the Bible believers that if they didn't leave, they would be arrested for disorderly conduct. Uh, they're not wrestling the, rest, uh, arresting the rock throwers and bottle throwers. They were arresting the Christians whose speech was offensive uh, to the Muslims. And so they, they left under, under threat of arrest. We sued the, uh, the district court, the lowest level, ruled against us. We appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. You get a right to appeal to a, a three-judge panel. And we lost two to one. And Judge Clay, the uh, the liberal African American judge, a, a true, uh, I would I would say he was an authentic liberal in a sense who understood the importance of the First Amendment. Even though, quite frankly, he probably despised our clients and despised the message that they were conveying. He wrote a scathing dissent, and he made the point that not only is this uh, opinion wrong, it's dangerously wrong. And and he was absolutely correct. So we filed a petition for rehearing on Bonk. Uh, requesting the full court, which was uh, 15 active judges at the time, 
to rehear the case. It's a rarity. I mean, it's almost harder to get an on banc uh, grant as it's like trying to get the Supreme Court to grant review on a case. And they granted it. Um, so I re-argued the case before a 15-judge panel, a very unique uh, experience, and, uh, and we won. And the judge who wrote the majority opinion was Judge Clay. And it, it's, as, uh, as you mentioned, David, it, it is the best. Quite frankly, it's, it, was a, it was pretty much a case that for 20 years and working on First Amendment litigation to be able to get an opinion that addressed all the issues from First Amendment, equal protection, free exercise, this question of incitement speech, which, uh, you know, again, kind of getting back to the, the beginning of the, um, we were talking about the, um, you know, this impeachment charade. It was so, so well done from top to bottom. And uh, he understood, right? And that's the First Amendment is, is the mo most important amendment, in my view, in the Constitution, the right to freedom of speech, the right to free exercise of religion. So much of that, so much is in, encompassed in that, uh, in that First Amendment. And that opinion was, uh, was so, so well done. And so, and I just want to kind of dovetail then, I think, into this, uh, into the impeachment, which I probably the, uh, uh, the last topic we should uh, discuss uh, during this podcast, we've got, we, we've only touched the surface on so many issues <laughs> that, that, as our intro, introductory podcast. But this idea that President Trump could be punished for his speech, and make no mistakes, that's what this impeachment was about, right? They were, they were he, was in, he was charged with inciting an insurrection, right? And that's another insurrection, a rebellion, a revolt, come on. That what happened at the Capitol? Yeah, there was there was crimes that were committed, but it wasn't a revolt. It wasn't an insurrection. It was even less of that than what the Black Lives Matter have been doing all summer long. And the left just kind of gives a nod and a wink to that and calls it a peaceful protest. And, and I know, you know, we all know and by listening to this that, you know, conservatives, next time we have a political rally or something, they're going to be using that term all the time, insurrectionists or domestic terrorists, just like they, you know, say our speech is hate speech. But the idea that you could punish somebody. And I don't buy that this is was just political, so the Constitution doesn't apply. That's nonsense. He was gonna he was gonna lose his right to be able to run for office again in the future. And the Supreme Court has had cases where they said that is in fact a right. Um, First Amendment cases dealing with that uh, with that issue, and not to mention those of us who would want to vote for him again for president are gonna be denied that ability to do so by disqualifying him because of this nonsense. And, and, you know, this, this idea of incitement speech, you know, there was a, for decades, the, you know, the Supreme Court, and it was a case decided in 1969, Brandenburg, right? There was a, a KKK leader who was advocating the, actually advocating the use of violence. And he was being prosecuted under Ohio statute, which they, the Supreme Court struck down as unconstitutional. So for speech to be in spite incitement and then prohibited under the First Amendment, and it's a very, very narrow exception. All the exceptions to the First Amendment uh, protections are very narrow and appropriately so. The, to begin with, the speech itself must explicitly encourage the use of violence or lawless action. What pre nothing President Trump said even comes close to meeting that very threshold requirement. You know, saying things like, we're going to fight for our rights. You know, we got to fight for freedom. We I mean, that's political hyperbole. That's political speech. It's fully protected. So even past that first point, there's nothing that President Trump said that the, the words that they latched onto. He said, quote, I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard, end quote. That's not that's not incitement speech as a matter of law, even under the first prong. But then secondly, this, the government would have to show that the speaker intends 
that his speech will result in the use of violence or lawless action, and that there is an imminent use of violence or lawless action. And, and, and this is a main point, and one of the main points of that uh, Bible believers case is that the hostile reaction of a crowd does not transform protected speech into incitement. The very idea, I mean, the very idea they even held of this charade impeachment, that was a greater attack to our Constitution than anything that happened at that Capitol on January 6th. And, and people need to realize that this, this charade, that was a dangerous charade. And thankfully, they, didn't, they weren't able to pull it off. In fact, quite frankly, I think the fact that they even tried to do it is for, it further exposes them for what they are. And I, I didn't watch all the Trump defense team, but I thought that the parts that I did see, I thought they did a great job just showing the hypocrisy of the left. You want to talk about vitriol and speech that was, that, uh, it's, you know, was, was in, in inciting anger, as it were, amongst people. I mean, there that's that resides in the left, but I still protect their right to do so, right? Their political hyperbole, whether, you know, the, it's Maxine Waters or some of these other clowns that are in the, that are in Congress, you know, if they want to, you know, spew hatred towards Republicans, and everything, so be it. They have a First Amendment right to do so. But don't be such hypocrites and then try to punish the, the, uh, anyone on the right just because you don't like the content of viewpoint of their message. And uh, in the Bible believers case, again, by a, a true authentic liberal, I'd say, um, is, is very much worth, uh, worth reading if you want to learn a little bit about the First Amendment, what it protects, and why it protects it. Yeah, and let me just say this to that, because I want to speak to our more nuanced listeners. And the listener will have to decide if they're nuanced or not. But the response to uh, your position, which is my position precisely, is, well, you know, impeachment is a political process. It's not a criminal trial or even a civil trial. It's not a judicial process. So why are you talking about the constitutional limits on government for imposing burdens or shutting down or prosecuting speech under Brandenburg. Uh, the Democrats can charge him with all kinds of high crimes and misdemeanors that have nothing to do with the law of the Constitution. Well, the answer to that is sure, politically, they can do whatever they think they can get away with. But the reality is that the response to that at a political level, purely political, by the Republicans, by the Trump lawyers and so forth, should be and was, as I understand it, and I didn't watch any of the impeachment hearings because it was an absolute farce, is that the Constitution doesn't protect President Trump only when he's criminally tried or civilly tried. It protects him as a U.S. citizen and in some cases, the Constitution extends beyond just citizenship. But in this case, and certainly when it comes to the First Amendment, it's not cabined, it's not held captive by whether or not there's a civil trial or a criminal trial. Congress and the Democrats had just as much of a political responsibility to adhere to the Constitution during impeachment as they would at a trial, in my view. They didn't. And he was properly acquitted, of course, because it was a fait accompli. Everyone knew he was going to be acquitted. So clearly the Democrats weren't doing it to cut the head off the snake. I agree here with um, the commentator, Andy McCarthy, who happens to be on our advisory board. 
and we don't agree with much, if not most of what he says about President Trump and the January 6th events uh, and so forth. But what um, I think we do agree with is the idea that what the Democrats really wanted to do was to embolden the Trump base and create a wedge with all the other Republicans, what's called the rhino Republicans, you know, Republican in name only, or the more moderate Republicans, or the anti-Trump Republicans, to create a rift in the Republican Party so that as an additional measure, there will be no more conservative voices heard in the political sphere, certainly at the federal level. But having said that, let me now conclude and I think you and I have agreed that for these podcasts, it's very important because we're not just First Amendment or public policy litigators. American Freedom Law Center engages in all sorts of public policy efforts, efforts to get people to talk about the issues in an intelligent way, and then to do something to make this country great again or greater than it is. So we discuss this idea of always leaving the show with some concrete steps. And I think you put your finger on the right buttons when you said, as Americans, we have to take the small steps. Don't listen to me when I talk about the civil war that's not kinetic. And the only way I see it resolving itself is through a kinetic civil war. That's how I view it. But just because that's my observation, it's not what I want. I want this country to return to its founding principles peacefully, civilly, and politically. So what do you do? What do you do when you're confronted with Russiagate through the Obama administration? What do you do when you see that no one's going to be prosecuted and no one's going to jail for all of the high crimes and misdemeanors that took place during the Obama administration? What are you going to do with all these COVID protocols that they claim are based on science, which are really just bureaucrats and technocrats taking certain scientific findings and imposing burdens on our liberty in ways that is irrational? What do you do? So let's take some small steps. So Rob mentioned a parallel economy. In my view, entrepreneurs with serious capital and uh, those of us without serious capital who were consumers need immediately to abandon all of the high big tech that we can. Sometimes it's just too difficult to do. But if you can quit Amazon Prime, as I'm doing, if you can quit WhatsApp, if you can go to Signal or Parler or one of these alternatives, if you can buy from companies that manufacture in the United States and not in China. China is absolutely our enemy. The whole question of their involvement with COVID is still up in the air. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so I haven't seen all of the facts yet. But what I do know is they're preventing the facts from coming out. And that is a red flag to me. But clearly China is our enemy. So buying from China or from companies that manufacture in China that make China rich 
on our consumer backs is a problem. Now, granted, you know, we have the free market people saying, yeah, but that's just going to raise prices. Fine. I'm willing to pay more to make America great again. In addition, Rob mentioned school boards. Get involved in your school boards because we've already seated academia, the colleges and the universities to the leftist. That's going to take a lot of effort and a lot of young children being raised and educated properly who grow up and get their PhDs to teach in colleges and universities. The progressive has been working on this since the 1960s. We're not going to catch up overnight or even over a couple of decades. However, I would advocate do what Rob has done with his 12 children and God willing now with his innumerable number of grandchildren and more to come. Do what I did with my two children. And that is either put them as Rob did in homeschooling or as I did in a private religious institution for their education. Take them out of the public school system. If you put your child into public school and you are a patriotic, God-fearing, faithful American, you are playing Russian roulette with your children's future. Period, end of discussion. And we can have that discussion. Doesn't have to be a period. But if you don't see that, you've got a lot of work to do to understand what's going on in this country. And you could start by joining the school board and look at the text that your children are learning from. Look at the school, the, the, the teacher's curricula and their what do they call those things that the teachers teach by their syllabi? Syllabi, right. Take a look at those things and tell me that they're not anti-American, anti-God and engaged in all the progressive propaganda. So there are things you can do. And one of them is to think deeply about each of these issues that we're going to be discussing over time. And you don't have to believe us as I said earlier, belief is meaningless. God willing, we're going to be talking factually about what took place. We're going to get into Russiagate and some of the most salient facts, the important facts that are factual, that show that it was an Obama administration operation from beginning to end. The same thing holds true with, with, educational curricula and so forth. So anyway, there are things that you can do. Um, continue to listen to these podcasts and others that talk about practical steps that an American can do so that we're not in a second amendment civil war, that the civil war remains non-kinetic, not violent. It remains civil and political and peaceful. Well, let me just, uh, I want to add an explanation point to that, and, and then I'll, I'll wrap it up here. And that is, you know, uh, President Ronald Reagan famously said that, uh, you know, our freedoms weren't handed down to us through the bloodstream. They must be fought for and protected, lest they're one generation away from being extinct. So I encourage everybody exercise that First Amendment right. Exercise those muscles, as it were, so they don't atrophy. So get out there, get on the public streets and the public sidewalks and the public forum throughout you know, places where you live and, and let your voice be heard. And if the government wants to shut you down, AmericanFreedomLawCenter.org, uh, contact us because we are staunch defenders of the, of the First Amendment. So I want to 
with that, I'd like to thank all of you for joining us. Uh, please know that we will continue our relentless fight for faith and freedom. And we, uh, we just, we ask for God's blessing and may he, may he bless you and may he continue to bless America. Thank you. Amen.